We have as our scripture reference today Psalm 119 and some selected verses there. The 119th Psalm is actually a psalm that is written in a structured way. It's a very sophisticated and, uh, and complex psalm, but it's written to the glory of God's word. King David now honoring God's word and esteeming it from his heart. And it's a powerful reminder to us of the importance of God's word in our lives. And as I say, this psalm is very complex. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Now, English has 26 from A to Z, but Hebrew has 22. And if you take 22 and divide it by the number of verses, total verses in Psalm 119, which is 176, you get eight. And so every eight verses, the, the, the beginning word of each of those eight verses in that section begins with the, that letter in the alphabet. So, for example, the first eight verses in Psalm 119 begins with the first Hebrew letter, Aleph. And the next one is Bet. And the next one, Gamel and Dalit after that. And, and so it works its way through in a very complex way, sophisticated way, reminding us all along of the love that we should have for God's word. Let me read for us the first 18 verses of this psalm and then one final verse, 105. And it says, Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. And oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. Watch my lips. I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Be good to your servant while I live that I may obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. One final verse, 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. And may God inspire us today through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. As I mentioned, this is a psalm that speaks of a deep love for the word of God. And we find all of these different synonyms in Psalm 119 referring to the word, uh, words such as law and word and ordinances and commands, precepts, testimonies, statutes and judgments. Those all have particular meaning and reference and we could study that at some length. But leave it to say today that, that the Word of God is everything necessary for us with regards to what we believe, our faith, and how we live, how we practice our faith. So what we believe is contained in the Scripture, and how we are to live is found in the Scripture. The Word of God is of ultimate value to us. Now, needless to say... We are living in an age of moral and spiritual ambiguity. Anyone disagree with that statement? Moral and spiritual ambiguity. There is in many ways a deep confusion about the ways of God and indeed the purposes of God. There are people that you know by name. You know them by name. You know them well. 
who actually believe that Oprah is one of the 12 apostles. They think Dr. Phil is a prophet. They don't know the difference between their, their favorite Hollywood actor and Jesus himself. It is an age of confusion. And somebody, therefore, somewhere has to get, rise up above the morass, this confused, secularized, postmodern generation, and say to the effect, there are some things that are ultimately true. Can you embrace that statement? There are some things that are ultimately true. There are people in our culture who push back against that sort of thing. Well, wait a minute. Let's not, let's not go that far to say that there are things that are ultimately true. I'm a person who actually believes that there are some things that are ultimately true. Ultimate reality actually exists. And there are things that we can know based on God's truth to us that are ultimately real and true. There's a word that is not ambiguous. There's a truth that is unchangeable. There is an anchor to which I can attach my life that will not be shaken. When everything that can be shaken is shaken, there is one thing that remains, and that is the truth of God's Word. There is, there is a, a cornerstone upon which you can stand, base your life, and when everything around you is dissolving and uncertain and being shaken away from you, there is a place to stand. There is an anchor that holds, and it's based on the truth of God's Word. I want to encourage you then with this simple message today to open your Bible and read it and to, to allow the Bible to open you, to study your Bible and let the Bible study you and to, and to uh, give yourself to the Bible and let the Bible give itself to you. I want, I want to encourage you to actually read the Bible. I have mentioned this and it's, it's uh, my simple devotional practice. It's, it is so simple. I hesitate to share it with you. You think that, I, that I'm... I'm, I'm just a novice in the, in, the, in the way. But all I do is open the Bible every day, usually in the morning, and I'm usually reading through a particular book of the Bible. Summertime for me is always one of the Gospels. So uh, along about June 1st, I will start in the Gospel of Luke, and I'll just open up that day, and I'll look at Luke chapter 1, verse 1, and I'll read the first verse of the Gospel of Luke. And if something in that verse appeals to me or attracts me or or touches my conscience in some way, then I'll just stop there and meditate on that truth, that issue, that thought, and I'll let that linger with me all day. I don't spend, I don't spend an hour. I don't spend 90 minutes. I'm not on my face before God, you know, four hours a day, uh, although that would be probably good for me. But it's not my practice. My practice is simply to read enough verses so that something speaks to me, and I linger there, and I take it with me all day. Because in so doing, it is, a regular, it is a regular diet of God's truth, God's reality, God's word in my life. And listen, God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It actually informs what we believe and coaches us along in how we are to live our lives. It matters to have God's word in our lives. I uh, talk about this once in a while. Yesterday morning, they came again to my door, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They, they come... They come to my door from time to time, and I don't know why the word hasn't gotten out. Don't stop there anymore. But it's never the same person twice, and it's always uh, someone new. And so that when the doorbell rings at my house on Saturday morning, I know it's either the neighbor, you know, who uh, wants me to help them with something, or it's the Jehovah's Witnesses stopping by. And so I went to the door yesterday morning, and there was a man standing there. He was middle-aged. He was dressed as well as he could. I mean, you could tell he was really trying hard to 
give a good appearance and 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 I said good morning and he started his spiel you know reminding me that everybody's afraid of the future and uncertain about tomorrow and God has a plan for tomorrow that may be encouraging to you and it's kind of the spiel and I said yes I know I know he does and I said come on in I said what's your name he said my name is Bill I said well my name is Greg and I don't tell folks who I am or what I do uh, and and Bill was Bill was at a distinct disadvantage for a lot of reasons yesterday, and one of the <laughs> one of the things that I try to do because I'm not making I'm not, I don't want to make fun of Bill uh, because in every circumstance, in every relationship, every moment when you're encountering another person, the goal of that encounter should be how can I best love that person. How can I best express love, the love of God to that person? For some people, you know, it's just you put your arms around them and you hug them and you reassure them and you, you tell them how, how important they are, and that's the best way to love them. Sometimes the best way to love folks is, is to discipline them and to help them understand what they're doing is wrong and there's a better way. You know, this is like parenting. That's how you best love your children. So you, you want to ask, how can I best love this person who's in front of me? And so you have to try to discern where that person is so you can love them effectively. And so I was trying to put that together quickly with, with my new friend, Bill. And so Bill's in the house, and, and he started his spiel. And, I, and I, I waited for a little while, and I said, well, Bill, you know, I, I understand what you're saying. But I said, uh, I have a question for you. Do you ever think about what other people feel toward you? I mean, what, what do you think people are feeling about you? when you come to their house like this? Are you interested in what I think about you? He said, well, I've never really thought about it. I said, well, you haven't solicited this, but let me just tell you what I'm thinking about you. Bill, you've come into my neighborhood this morning, and you're talking to my neighbors and my friends and people I care about. This is my neighborhood. These are my folks. And you're, and you're talking to them in ways that I do not approve of with regard to the most important person in my life. You see, Jesus Christ is not only my Savior, Bill, but He is my Lord and my King and my God. I believe that Jesus Christ is the pre-existent, co-eternal Word of God. And that that Word became flesh and dwelt among us and He lived a sinless life and He gave His life as, as a sacrifice for my sin and yours and the whole world. And on the third day He rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God. He's Lord and King and God to me. He's my Savior. He's everything to me. And you're going around telling people that he's nothing more than just another spiritual prince or maybe the highest rank of an archangel, but nothing more than that. And let me just say about that, Bill, it's really disappointing to me that you're doing that. And so I'm, I'm disappointed in you. And Bill, well, no, it's because I was trying to love Bill best I can. And Bill, you know, fumbled for a moment. And he didn't know, what are you going to do? And so he went back to his spiel, the kind of the rote. And, and I said, Bill, I ask, ask you a question. Have you ever gotten on your knees in your life and prayed to Jehovah God, Almighty God, and said to him, Lord, I'm, I'm going to take the Bible and I'm going to read it from cover to cover. And I want you to reveal to me the truth about Jesus Christ, who he is. How, how I should think about him and how my face should be developed around him. Have you ever done that? He said, well, no, no, I've never done that. 
And I said, would you think about doing that? Asking God, because I assure you, if you would pray to Almighty God, Jehovah God, and you would ask Him to reveal Himself to you as you read the Bible, you would never come to the conclusions about Jesus that the Jehovah's Witnesses have come to. You would never get there. The reason you believe what you believe is because somebody else has told you what to believe about that. So I, I just encourage you, I challenge you to prayerfully read the Bible and let the Bible speak to you. And he said, well, I said, I'll think about that. Maybe, maybe I'll do that. I'll think about that. I said, I hope you will. And then I let him go. <laughs> Here's what I believe about the Bible. If you read the Bible and apply it to your life, it will actually change your life. It will adjust your attitudes. It will change the way you do relationships. It will change your behaviors. It will, it will actually get you to pick up, the, pick up a phone and call someone important to you and, or maybe sit down and write your mother a note. It will actually get you thinking in loving ways toward the people around you. It will perhaps change your work ethic or the way you think about life or or maybe a spirit of entitlement that tends to grip American culture right now. You know, if you read the Bible and begin to apply the principle of the Scripture in your life, your sense of entitlement will just actually start falling off of you. And you realize that you, you're a person who's responsible for yourself before God. And, 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 and your worldview will begin to change. The Bible has a transforming kind of effect on people. And I want to challenge you to consider it. You know, that word transformed, that's a catchy word, isn't it? Have you thought about transformation recently at all in the life of our church? And so the Bible is the next best step in that process just to consider his word. Let me give you three brief thoughts about the word of God as we learn from this psalm. Number one, David says, take heed to the word. You might want to write that down. Take heed. Verse nine, David said, how can a young man keep his way pure? And that is by living according to your word. Now I know this isn't true at Union Chapel, but there are places, there are churches where where the word of God is actually offered and it falls on deaf ears. In other words, the, the word of God is read or it's, it's preached in part and it kind of goes out a certain way and then falls to the ground and just dissipates. And people in those kinds of religious circles, you know, they, they, they leave the, the church experience and they say, well, look, you know, I've done my duty, I've done my deal because I, I, I attended the worship service and I stayed for the whole thing. I didn't leave before it was over. And I listened to the sermon. I didn't want to, but I listened to the whole thing. What else does God expect of me than to show up and listen? And the answer is, God expects you to take the truth that you hear and actually assimilate it in your life. Make the application. Do something about what you've learned so that your ways become more like God's intention for you. Verse 10 David said, I seek you with all my heart, my whole heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. In other words, David's saying, look, I take heed to the word of God. I'm passionate about the word of God. I feel strongly about it. I'm giving my whole heart to the notion that God will speak to me through his word. Verse 11, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, here's the understatement of the day. Ours is an instant gratification, self-indulgent age, Sinful options are all around, and in many cases, the social permission to engage in these behaviors exists with impunity. In other words, there used to be social stigmas attached to certain behaviors in our culture, and when the stigma goes up, the frequency of those behaviors go down, and when those stigmas are removed from culture, the frequency goes up. And so here we have kind of a, kind of a weird culture in which anything goes and everything goes. 
I mean, one of the watchwords in our culture right now is what happens in Vegas. And everyone in this room at some point in our lives have actually uttered that phrase. Now what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Ha, ha. Let me just uh, give you a dose of reality. What happens in Vegas or what happens anywhere in your life actually doesn't stay there, but it follows you home. And it affects your relationships, and it affects your spirit, and it affects your, your future. That's, that's the reality of it. One of the great shields, then, against temptation is the, a reservoir of the Word of God inside of you. It actually matters when you have the Word of God part of your life and psychology so that when temptation comes, you know how to manage that. Verse 31, I hold fast, I cling to your statutes, O Lord, do not let me be put to shame. So David's saying, look, I'm passionate about this. I take heed to the word of God. It's important to me. I take it to heart, and I don't want to be put to shame. I want to live in a righteous way. Now, here's a second thought, and that is David encourages us to rejoice in the Lord. Re rejoice in the word of God. Yeah. Hear the word joy in it. <laughs> you know, reading the Bible isn't just a, a perfunctory religious exercise. It's actually meant to give you a sense of joy and purpose. Had a woman approach me last night after our worship, and she said, you know, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a person who has received a gift from God. And I said, what is that gift? And she said, I have the gift of still being in love with God's Word after all these many years of serving God. And I said, that is a wonderful gift. She said, I'm still just as passionate about the Bible today. And she was holding her Bible like this, and it was all well-worn, you know, you could see the pages were all tattered in it. And I said, what a beautiful gift. Because what happens to us is, you know, you live for God for a while, and you serve Jesus for a while, and you study the Bible for a little bit, and, you know, it becomes a little more familiar to you, and then you, you know, life happens, and stuff happens, and, and, you, and you stop addressing the Scripture. I had a young woman approach me not long ago in one of our services, and she said, she said, I'm embarrassed to say that I own a Bible, but I never read it. We won't take a survey. David said, I have rejoiced in the way. You know, reading the Bible then is something that you should be excited about. Here's a prayer that I've recited over the years as I've served God, and that is, Lord, Restore to me my first love. Restore to me my first love. And the reason I pray that is because when I was a new Christian, there was a vitality, a hunger, a thirst, a desire in me to go for God that, that was very unique. And it happens to just virtually everyone who becomes a new believer. I mean, it's an exciting moment. It's so thrilling and it's so life-changing. You want to absorb as much of this good thing as you can. And I remember as a new Christian, I had a voracious appetite for the Bible. I could not read the Bible enough. The words were leaping off the page at me and just grabbing me at every turn. It was, it was just such a romance. It was so great and so wonderful. And so as the years have unfolded now, you know, that, that life, the devil and the flesh, you know, they, they have their way. And so my simple prayer is, Lord, restore to me my first love. If I can just get in touch with some of that first love dynamic, that will really help me. That will motivate me. That will encourage me. And I just challenge you to pray the same kind of prayer because God will answer that prayer. And sometimes in life uh, you say, well, it's impossible. 
Well, if you're in the Bible, you'll know that the Bible says all things are possible. Or you might say, I'm too tired, but the Bible says I'll give you rest. Or nobody really loves me, but the Bible says God loves me. And you say, I can't go on. And the Bible says my grace is sufficient. And you say, I can't figure things out. And the Bible says, I'll direct your steps. And you say, I can't do it. And the Bible says, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. And you say, I'm not able. And God says, that's okay because I am able. And you say, it's not worth it. And God says, it will be worth it. Hang in there. And you say, I can't forgive myself. And God says, well, keep working on that. In the meantime, I forgive you and you'll be okay. And you say, I can't manage, but God says, I'll supply all your needs according to my riches and glory. And you say, well, I'm just afraid. But the Bible says, I've not given you a spirit of fear, but love and power and a sound mind. And you say, I'm always worried and frustrated, but the Bible says, cast all your cares upon me. I care for you. And, the and, and you say, I feel all alone. And the Bible says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Psalm 119, verse 24, David says, your statutes are my delight. They're my counselors. They give me the perspective I need and the hope that I need to go forward. And so David writes this wonderful, honorable, praise-filled, worthy-filled psalm about the grandness of the Word of God. Here's a third thought, and we'll be finished. And that's to esteem God's Word. Put it in its proper place. Esteem God's Word. Trust it. Meditate. Take confidence. Uh, estimate it highly. Give it value. Thy testimonies, David said, are wonderful to me. They are faithful. They are pure. They are everlasting. There's a verse in Proverbs that you hear me recite from time to time. I'm not sure why this grabs me so much, but I'll, I'll share it with you one more time. Proverbs 13, 15, it says, The way of the transgressor is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. Maybe you've thought to yourself, it's too hard to be a Christian. You know, I've tried this thing. I just can't do it. I can't measure up. Expectations are too high. Uh, I, don't, I don't like the, the boundaries. I just feel too restrictive. I just can't do it. It's too hard, especially in this culture where people are so negative toward the Christian faith. So I just give up on my faith. And people walk away from their faith every day. And it's, it's just a bad idea. In fact, it's a tragic idea. And people say it's too hard to be a Christian, but the Bible actually says the way of the transgressor is hard. I, I would submit to you that it's not too hard to be a Christian. It's not hard to know your sins are forgiven. It's not hard to know the delight of the Lord. It's not hard to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not hard to know that you have hope for eternity, eternal life. Those things aren't hard at all. Let me tell you what's hard. Dying of AIDS, that's, that's got to be hard. I mean, laying in a VA hospital some, somewhere having lost your sobriety and your sanity and your friends and your family and, and, and most of your life dying of cirrhosis of the liver. That's got to be, don't you imagine? That's got to be really hard. Really hard. The way of the transgressor of hard. Verse 27, let me understand the teaching of your way, your precepts. Then I will meditate on your wonders. The book of Proverbs is the richest text that you can find on leadership and organization and business, for example. I read the book of Proverbs anytime that I'm trying some new initiative. If I've got some investment I'm going to make or some leadership decision, this, the Proverbs is some place that I go all the time. I, I live much in the, in the book of Proverbs. You can pick up the book of Proverbs, this little devotional strategy that I use, just read a, a verse until something grabs you. 
you don't have to go very far in Proverbs at all for something to grab you because it's so practical, it's so applicable, so meaningful. And the book of Proverbs teaches me that I'm to prosper and to be blessed and wise and joyful and confident, dependent on God and, and fruitful, I mean productive in life. That what I put my hands on, if I do it in God's way, will actually succeed and it will prosper and it will bless people and bless me and that I'll have the wisdom of God in doing it and the right perspective along the way. And my relationships will be meaningful. And that's what the, the book of Proverbs promises and offers to us and gives us. It leaves me so shocked. I'm so stunned by modern American culture and Western cultures right now that are so quick and so free to mock God. It's just astonishing to me how easily it is for people in all kinds of positions in our culture to actually mock God, to mock His ways, to mock His standards, to mock His values, to mock His virtues. They just take their finger and poke it in the eye of God. It's just really shocking to me how free people are to, to impugn God's reputation and to take His name in vain and to, and to, and to in a sarcastic and mocking way, contradict his word and his truth how it's so easy for Hollywood just to take something that's that's so historic and so meaningful and so rich in its tradition from a biblical perspective and just warp it to their own desire and to their own image it's just amazing to me how free people are and and seemingly with impunity that they can mock God the Bible says that Whoever mocks me, God says, I shall mock them in derision. It's just a word of advice from your pastor. If you're going to go mocking someone, you're going to go poking your finger in somebody's eye, don't poke it in God's eye. You know, pick somebody else. It's the wrong guy to pick on. Seriously. With all sobriety. I love the word of God. It's been a lamp to my feet and a light to your path. I know you resonate with this. You you identify with that statement. When I was a sophomore at Valparaiso, I went through the sophomore slump. Many of you identify with that. I mean, I just had a bad year. Ever had a bad year? And I was uh, struggling with my sense of vocational purpose, my sense of call. What did God want me to do vocationally with my life? It's a big, it's a big deal. It's a big question. My relationship with Beth, who's been my wife all these years now at the time you know it was on the rocks and she was on another university campus we were hundreds of miles away from each other and that wasn't going well and then I suffered an injury in in my athletic career and it kind of sidetracked all of that for a long time the whole year really my grades were suffering I mean I was just in a bad place I was discouraged I was in despair I was depressed I, I'm sure I qualified for clinical depression I was just in a mess and I, I went back to my dorm room one night, and I, and I just cried out to God. I said, Lord, I'm just losing my way. I'm, I'm, I just don't know what to do. And I opened the Bible. I had the Bible in my lap, and I just opened the Bible, and I was just kind of thumbing like this through the Bible as I was calling on God. And I finally stopped praying, and I just looked down where I was. Now, I don't recommend this as a strategy for hearing God, but that's how it worked for me that night. And I, I looked down, and it was landed on Luke chapter 18, verse 1. And it says, Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray 
and not to lose heart. And I read that phrase, not to lose heart, and I went, that's it. That's, that explains what I'm feeling. I'm losing heart. I'm losing my way. And so I backed up and read the verse again, and it reminded me, here's the antidote to losing heart, and that is at all times they ought to pray and seek God. And down to verse 7, it says, Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect, who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? In other words, if you'll call out to God and you'll hang on to him and you won't give up and you'll persist in, in asking God for his help, he will come to your aid and he won't let you linger longer than is necessary. And I love that because that was a now word. That was a fresh word for me in that moment. God's word was a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Not long ago, I was in another situation where I, was in, I felt like I was in a war, so in a battle, and I just felt like the, 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 the enemies were too great, and I was going to be overwhelmed by that whole experience. And I was reading a book from a friend of mine, which he had written, and he was referring to the fact that God will help you fight your battles. And I thought, well, that's, that's a good thing. And I found this wonderful reference in this book in 2 Chronicles 20. And it's the story of Jehoshaphat, who was the king of Israel at the time, and and these Syrians were threatened to overwhelm them and an overwhelming force. And if the Syrians are coming, we're done kind of thing. And the word is the Syrians are coming. And so Jehoshaphat falls on his face before God and he begins to pray. And God said, listen, Jehoshaphat, this isn't your problem. This battle is not yours. You won't have to fight this battle. This battle belongs to me. Here's what I want you to do. You remember, some of you remember the story. God told Jehoshaphat to put the worship team out front in front of the army. Tomorrow when the Assyrian army is on the horizon and they're threatening to overwhelm you because of superior force, send out the worship team and let them strike up some, some worship choruses and let everybody sing the praises of God because this isn't your battle, this is mine. I'm going to fight this battle for you. And he told Jehoshaphat, he said, he said, what you need to do is just take your position and stand firm and then watch the deliverance of God. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good word right there. That's a good word for you if you're in the, in the midst of a real struggle. If your enemy seems great and with overwhelming force. This battle really doesn't ultimately belong to you. This belongs to God. And that day, Jehoshaphat led the worship team out there. Can you imagine the generals are all going, the king's lost his mind. I mean, really. The, saint, the choir? And God gave them a great victory that day. And the enemy ran for their lives. It was an amazing moment. And Jehoshaphat, this is how Je Jehoshaphat got his nickname, Jumping Jehoshaphat. Because the enemy scattered and Jehoshaphat is praising God. He's this is the king. He's jumping up and down. Jumping, 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 jumping. Jumping Jehoshaphat. My wife Beth was diagnosed with cancer when she was 35 years old. It was a disease that had taken her mother's life when her mother was 39. We went in and had surgery, very painful surgery, followed by radiation and chemotherapy. So here was my wife, young children. Our boys were 5 and 12 at the time. She has everything to live for, reliving the nightmare of her own mother's passing, unsure if she could face whatever the future held for her. In her darkest moments, those darkest days, I can, I can tell you, and she would be glad to give witness to this, as she does on a regular basis, that she was, we were sustained by the presence of God and by the Word of God. 
literally held up by the truth of God's promises. One afternoon after we met with the doctors kind of one last time and her pathology was bad, they upgraded her stage level and it was bad news and prognosis was, you know, all this suspicion and we're not sure what's going to happen. I grabbed the oncologist, you know, and drug him into the hallway one afternoon and made him shoot straight with me and, you know, he was full of equivocation. Didn't, he didn't know. That's why doctors practice medicine. They don't know what's going on either half the time. Can we just say this? Who knows what they're doing? You don't. Why do you suppose anyone else does? We're all just practicing, doing the best we can. One day my wife, who was in despair and in a dark place, she found Psalm 118, verses 7 and 8. It reads, The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. Cancer is a pretty good enemy. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust people. She said, you know, that helps. The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than it is to trust in people. And there it was. And she said, I'm going to look in triumph over my enemy. And I said, I'll go with you. I said, no matter what, cancer will not define us. And cancer will not defeat us. One way or the other, it's not going to have the last word in our life. Because we're going to look in triumph over our enemies. And it's better to trust in the Lord than it is to trust in the opinion of men. And so here we were. And so we just took our stand. No matter what, we're going to trust in God and look triumphantly on our enemies. That really helped us. And through that season of time, Beth then found a verse that you're familiar with too in Philippians 4.13. And this has become her life, life verse. She quotes it. I, once a week, I'll hear her muttering it. And it's simply, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Yeah, that's right. It's a great thing. How do you know that promise is in here if you're not consulting the truth of God's word? Thy word, O oh Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's why we esteem it. That's why we rejoice in it. That's why we value it. I can see ahead of me. The pathway is clear. There are some things that are wrong, and I can't make them right. I cannot equivocate. The Bible teaches me that self-reliance is sin, but God-reliance is righteous. Racial prejudice, that's wrong every time. But love for all people is God's best plan idolatry in any form that's wrong but loving God preeminently is altogether right I love the story in 2nd Kings chapter chapters 22 and 23 there was a string of really bad kings in Israel one of them's name was Manasseh he was bad and then he was followed by another guy named Ammon he was a horrible reprobate everything you can imagine a leader doing wrong this guy absorbed himself in it he was a mess horrible under him the, the practice of worship was completely lost in Israel. I mean, they closed up the temple, boarded the place up. It started collecting dust. It wasn't just that the church was, you know, shrinking. There was no worship at all. They lost touch with their faith. And it was a horrible season of time. And then came a king named Josiah. And Josiah was 20 years old when he became king. And I love this story. 
one of his, uh, one of his associates came to Josiah one day and announced to him, his name was Hilkiah, he said, look, I found the word of God in the abandoned and defiled temple. I was in there, and I pulled the, pulled the boards off the, off the window and climbed in. I'm in the temple, I'm rummaging around, and under this pile of debris and all this dirt and dust, I found these scrolls. I found the word of God. He said, you ought to read this. And Josiah, at 20 years old, the Bible says that he put, rolls out a scroll and he starts reading from the, from the law of Moses. And as he read the law of Moses, the words of God, the Bible says Josiah began to weep. And it touched his heart, broke his heart. Josiah called him in. He called the whole nation together. He's king. Do what he wants. Good to be king. And so he said, everybody's got to come to a meeting. So they all show up at Jerusalem. And Josiah said, look, we found the words of God. And it's touched my heart. Check it out. Listen to this. And so Josiah starts reading the word of God. All he's doing is reading the Bible out loud. And the whole nation, people begin to weep. People begin to fall on their faces and cry out to God. And listen. There, there's this move of God, a revival that hits the whole nation. They turn back to God under the power of the Word of God. I love that story. You know, a nation can be turned back to God, the power of the Word of God, if we're bold enough, faithful enough, careful enough. So. My friends, here's my point. Cling to the Word. Hear the Word. Cherish the Word. Let it change you and purify you and transform you and heal you, redeem you, encourage you, restore you. This is my prayer for you, that you'll actually take up the Bible and begin to read it and to allow God to speak to you through it. I want to show you a video as we conclude this morning. I found this on YouTube a few weeks ago. It is, it is a depiction of one of the small clusters of believers in China, which are part of an underground church. There's great persecution in China these days, most of the church in China is underground, completely out of sight of the government and persecution. It's estimated that the church in China is growing at a rate of about 70,000 people per day. When we get to heaven someday, it'll be jaw-dropping for us to see the amazing work of God's Spirit during the days and years in which we lived in other parts of the world. China is a prime example of this. This movement in China is a, a movement of God's power. It is a movement of God's word. It is a movement of incredible courage and conviction on the part of these Chinese believers. There are many, many martyrs being recorded in China. Another interesting facet of the Chinese church is that it's primarily a youth movement. You'll see that depicted here. Just notice the demographic of the, the age group of the people in the, in the, depicted in the video. And what you see here is an occasion when these young Chinese believers in this little house church underground are receiving Bibles for the first time. We heard some Chinese being uttered in this video and we wondered what they were saying and we had some friends at Ball State who interpreted it for us so that we, ha we put in the captions, it wasn't on the original video, but there's some captions here to see what they actually were saying in response. It only lasts for about a minute. If you have your Bible with you today, would you just take it? Hold it in your hands. And let me invite you to stand as, you, as we watch this video together. And just hold your Bible. And um, check it out.
黑住了，加黑住。当我看到这本书，我都看到了那些帮助我们的弟兄姊妹们，他们的血和泪放出来的。这是我们教会这个时候最需要的，真是我们最需要的书。Let's pray. Lord, help us to take heed to your word, to rejoice in it, to be passionate about it, to give thanks, and to, do, to esteem it, to estimate it highly, to put the right value on these words. Indeed, Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us to hide these words in our hearts. So that we might not sin against you, but live in righteous ways, honorable ways, in ways that bring blessing, favor to your name. That's our prayer today, we ask. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.